We're going to talk about AI and the question of is it coming for our non-union entry-level $40 an article crappy press jobs. And then we all, we've got a story from my neck of the woods. We're going to go down to Tidewater VA and we've got a fun little story about an adorable, precocious six-year-old who shot his teacher. I should have read ahead. But first, Trump, it is news whether we like it or not. If you're going to indict the president, basically, it better be a really good case. But I think it's that problem of how do you frame a guilty man? I mean, Donald Trump is a career criminal. He leaned on a local official to find him a thousand and some change votes uh, yes. is a much stronger case, much more clear cut than what's going on in New York. The end of humanity at the hands of AI. Thomas, AI is in the news all the time now. It, it came out of nowhere. Is that overblown? Is it fear mongering? Honestly, it's hard to say. They, they are impressive and I've used, I've just kind of fucked around with them a little bit. And, and for sex stuff, of course, and for sex stuff, I say, well, you know, can this get sexual? And it says, I'm not programmed to do that. I'm like, what about for $10? And it goes, I'm not programmed to do that. I'm like, 50. <laughs> From what I understand, purposefully, intentionally, not accidentally, but purposefully shooting his teacher. The good news is the teacher survived. Repeatedly choked this teacher and another teacher. Um, repeatedly assaulted other students. Most days he was unable to be in school without at least one parent with him. It's really sad. This was one of those stories that was blowing up because people quickly gleamed, gloamed to the racial dynamics, fundamentally American sadness and tragedy to this, which is the ease with which even a six-year-old can get their hands on a legally purchased firearm in the home, bring it into school. I'm never going to have a gun in the home because I would be terrified of my son finding it. We're in a situation where he does understand where the guns are kept and his parents are not keeping them properly stored and no one's held accountable. And the American solution, I guess, is that if you're lucky enough to survive such a calamity, you can probably get some financial recompense for it in, in a monstrous lawsuit. Hi. I'm Thomas Chatterton Williams. And I'm Jeff Chatterton Mauer. I'm a writer. And I'm a comedian. And we host a podcast called Wrong Think. More of a question than a comment. In addition to being more of a question than a comment, it is also more of a podcast we want people to know about than just two guys talking into a microphone for no reason. So we'd like to ask you to please subscribe to the show. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. If you don't like the show, then please punish your enemies by sharing it with them. And also, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Grinder, we got a lot of listeners on Grinder. The Wrong Think Podcast, thinking except bad. Thomas Chatterton Williams, is it okay? Let me run this by you. If I call you T.C. Williams High School, which is the school that Remember the Titans was based on. Oh, yeah. Okay. I can do yeah, that. Okay. Let me, let, me, let me keep going and see if you still like it. The school was renamed in 2020 because its namesake, Thomas Chambly Williams, was deemed to be a segregationist. Now it is Alexandria City High School. Now, how do you feel about the, names, the name T.C. Williams High School? Is that true? That is true. Yes. Thomas Chambly Williams? Chambly. Thomas Chambly <laughs> Williams. He may be a neighbor of yours in France. Yes, he sounds French to me. Probably dead, but... Definitely a French middle name. Probably very dead. Chambly. It sounds like he's from a wine-growing region. <laughs> <laughs> I, it didn't say that on the Wikipedia page. It just said he was a <laughs> segregationist. No, I didn't oh, say Wow, that. wow. Okay. I'm conflicted now. Okay, well then we'll stick with what you have asked me to call you, which is TC Dubs. TC Dubs, yeah. how was your week? You feeling good? Feeling good. It's been a crazy week. There's a lot of stuff that I could complain about, but what's on your mind? Uh, I'll tell you what's on my mind. Stealth Mormons, okay? We got to talk those? about this. Stealth, oh, I will tell you. So I live in Washington, D.C., near the Anacostia River. There is a beautiful river walk here along the Anacostia River, especially this time of year. It is just a great place to hang out. You go there, mm. there's families, you know, people, strollers, a lot of fun, good times. I'm down there about a week ago. A guy comes up to me, says, excuse me, sir. And he's, he's like, well-dressed, so it's not going to be, you know, hey, can I have a dollar? Excuse me, sir. I said, hey, well, yeah, what's up? He says, do you have, have you heard the good news about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? He was a Mormon missionary, but number one, not on a bike. Number two, not wearing the traditional white shirt 
with a black tie. And number three is a black dude. Caught me, there are black Mormons now. Caught me totally off guard. And if you think that's nuts, where do you hear this? Two days ago, happened to me again. Different black guy. I have, There are black Mormons all over my part of town. In Anacostia, that's interesting to me. I mean, yes. have you looked into that? What well, near what is the foothold that they've found in the in the DC area? I don't know, but we have two confirmed cases. We have <laughs> two confirmed cases of black Mormons. Three is a trend. Well, and, and also compare that to I have been approached by zero white Mormon missionaries since I've been here. So as far as I can tell, according to my admittedly limited data, all Mormon missionaries are, are now black. And they catch, they really catch you off guard is what I'm saying. You should write a sub stack about, you should write a blog post about uh, <laughs> how, how Mormonism is being lost to the great replacement. Richard Hanania would probably retweet that. I mean, yeah, the, 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 there's a great replacement going on in the church of Latter-day Saints. Um, but that makes me think I, I haven't seen proselytizers in a long time. It was kind of a feature of my childhood yeah. that every once in a while, you know, someone would knock on the door and, yep. and I would ask my dad, who was that? And he was like, it was Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's I was like, what? Right. What? <laughs> what? what is that? They just come to your door. I remember when yeah. I was, um, I was campaigning for, uh, well, I was um, volunteering for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign uh, with some friends. We were in Maryland and West Baltimore going around, mm-hmm. knocking on doors, trying to get people to vote in the primaries for, for Barack Obama. And it was, I've written about this in, in one of my books. It was kind of depressing. Uh, you know, this is an intensely impoverished side of Baltimore. I had really never seen like American inner city poverty that bad. And I've seen Newark, New Jersey, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time, Bal- but this, this was- Baltimore is something, can confirm. Th- Baltimore is This something. was crazy. And so we were going around, a lot of boarded up houses, a lot of drug dealing, Everybody really pretty kind and nice when we uh, spoke to them on their porches. A lot of people had never heard of Barack Obama. A lot of people had never heard of Hillary Clinton in this neighborhood. But the thing that kept happening to us, it was my buddy um, from college and another buddy from Germany and myself. The thing that kept happening to us when we came up to people's doors was they would say, oh, y'all are the Jesus people, aren't you? And it's like, no, no, we're not missionaries. They're like, what? They're like, Never seen no white people on my porch. And I'm like, I'm not even white. No. <laughs> I'm not even white. But and two, I'm not a missionary. Two and a half out of three, they're thinking something's up. Man, it was just crazy. And then we realized they kept saying that to us because we caught up to, there was like a group of really nice, like uh, white Jesus people. They kept hitting up every door before we got there. We were, uh-huh. we were, we were, we were hitting, we were doing the same routes. Um, but it was really crazy. Yeah. Uh, proselytizing is a really interesting thing. I can't really find where the motivation comes from. Seems like a tough gig, especially if uh, gig. if Mormonism is like you got to go up to people and say, hey, are you tired of sex and caffeine? I would imagine not a lot of takers for that offer. So, <laughs> yeah, there's also Jews for Jesus. If you ever lived in uh, New York City and went through like Grand <laughs> Central, that's a crazy one, too. Right. And they basically yeah. assume anybody can be Jewish. I've been asked, are, excuse me, are you Jewish? It's like, no. <laughs> do, do I give you that impression? Yeah. Jews for Jesus is a very, very like high degree of difficulty proselytizing. Yeah, it's all tough. You got to respect <laughs> the game, though. Yes, yeah, some more difficult than others. Jews for yeah. Jesus. I don't even know. That doesn't even compute. That, that phrase does not compute in my brain. Jews for Jesus. I have seen those people in Grand Central Station. I did not walk over and ask. What? So Jews for Jesus, how does that work? Because my guiding principle with, with all of this is I'm not in the mood to talk to a proselytizer. Thank you very much. Yeah, but uh, yeah, maybe you should you should uh, you should do some research and you should see what they're about. Work it into one of your next. Uh, I should, you know, because because the truth is, I haven't heard the good news about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Maybe if I did, I'd have a very different opinion. <laughs> Why don't we get into it though? We've got a lot to talk about besides stealth Mormons. We're going to get to the big thing of the week, which everybody knows we're going to get to. But I just wanted to later on, we're going to talk about AI and the question of is it coming for our non-union entry level. $40 an article crappy press jobs. And then we all, we've we got a story from ni- my neck of the woods. We're going to go down to Tidewater VA. Mm. And we've got a fun little story about an adorable, precocious six-year-old, oh, who shot his teacher. I should have read ahead. Six-year-old <laughs> shot his teacher. We will, we'll get to that later. But first, Trump, it is news whether we like it or not. Donald Trump has been in- indicted. The indictment was basically what everyone thought it was going to be. It is falsifying business records and then how that relates or potentially doesn't relate to a federal crime, a federal election law violation, or the part people didn't expect, 
the prosecutor is saying the falsified business records may have been to lay the groundwork for tax fraud later on. Thomas, I got to say, in so many ways, this is kind of my nightmare scenario when it comes to a Trump indictment in that people who know me know I am no fan of Donald Trump. I think he has committed millions, if not billions of crimes. And yet there are two important principles here, right? Number one, you got to be very careful when it comes to prosecuting political figures because that is a dicey, dicey proposition that is frequently done in countries that are not democracies. Number two, nobody's above the law. If the president is guilty, you got to prosecute him. Those are my two principles. If you're going to indict the president, basically, it better be a really good case. And my reading of this is that this is an awfully weak case. Is that your perception as well? It's hard to know exactly what to make of it, but I think it's that problem of how do you frame a guilty man? I mean, Donald Trump is a career criminal. There's so much to take issue with or to potentially look into in the criminal justice system that he's done over the course of his entire career, pre-presidency, post-presidency, during the presidency, that it's hard to know where to start. I mean, my friend David French makes the point that the case, the potential case in Georgia, where he leaned on a local official to find him a thousand and some change votes, uh, yes. is a much stronger case. Yes. Um, much more clear cut than what's going on in New York. But the problem is that we're talking about this like this is the first president who's been indicted, but this is the first time a Donald Trump has been president. That's the real problem. We don't know what to do with this. Jonathan Chait has a really smart article in New York Magazine about the president shouldn't be above the law, but he also shouldn't be below the law. And so I think you have a point that this, this seems really risky to me. It seems like it might be something that... Trump and his supporters will be able to call an overzealous DA's bluff on. Uh, it seems like he's in a position, Chait says, where an activity he could have done legally became a crime simply because he was a candidate for office. And that makes sense. You know, like there's nothing illegal about paying a woman not to talk about your assignation. <laughs> you know, like, like, right. like who, I do it all the time. Us? I do it all the time. Among us? I did it twice today. <laughs> you know, you're making, you're making yeah. cash app payments all the time. You're, you're, you know, no one knows what your PayPal I, is like. I can't, I can't keep them straight. I really got to get, I got to get an Excel sheet because I can't even remember how many women I've paid off. No, but among it's true. Us. If he, if he was not a candidate for office, he could have just done it. And he also, in the whole falsifying business records thing, which is a crime, albeit a misdemeanor, if not connected to a second crime. If he had just not gotten Michael Cohen involved, if he just paid out of pocket, that's also not a crime. So right. it does seem a little ticky tacky. I've been reading a lot of analyses of this because I am, after all, a comedian, which is the exact opposite of being a legal expert. So I've been reading what people who know what they're talking about have to say. And I'm seeing words like risky, which is what Charlie Savage, the New York Times, called it. Uh, Ian Milheiser had a really good article in Vox. Boy, Vox blows hot and cold these days, don't they? Anyway, Ian Milheiser called it a... Who's working at Vox these days? Well, Ian Milheiser is, and he's he knows okay. what he's talking about. Called it a dubious legal theory. Uh, in the Washington Post, Cheryl Bader, an associate professor at the Fordham University of Law School, said... The prosecutor wants a story and a theory that the jury is going to find compelling and moving. Technical violations and false records are not that. This, it, it just all seems really tenuous. What's so, I guess, disappointing about it is the fact that Trump was kind of fading. Uh, it looked like yeah. his uh, influence over the party was faltering for the first time. DeSantis, uh, we've talked about this a lot, but DeSantis was mm -hmm. vying for uh, primacy in the Republican Party. Trump's yeah. picks for the midterms didn't win. And suddenly this indictment has made even his political rivals like Pence and DeSantis come out in strong support. And his polling numbers have, have surged since yeah. the announcement. I mean, it's put him back front and center in the news story. I mean, it's really depressing. It, there is really something to this guy. I mean, I have to give him some props. The Teflon Don <laughs> moniker is not without some merit. The guy is fucking incredible at what he does when he's doing what he does sticking around <laughs> making you talk about him it's really you know this is not the first time a president's been indicted this is the first time a donald trump type character has been the president of the united states and potentially the next president of the united states it's just unreal the is guy won't the go time, away is this not the first time a president's been indicted it is the first time a president's been indicted in criminal court. Oh, oh, you, oh you said it is. I thought, I, I thought you said yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it, it is. is. Yeah, no, okay. it is. Yes, it is the first it time. Is. I was going to say, Jimmy Carter? Did Jimmy Carter? 
of a bunch of DUIs or something <laughs> that I don't know about. Yeah, okay. We're, we're on the same page. It is the first time of president. I oh, yeah. Yeah, I. It, it is sad. But that's not the big story. I mean, that's not the thing. It's not. It, this is not a real president. It's Donald <laughs> Trump. It's like, you can't say this is a president. Being, we can't set this precedent. No, this is Donald Trump. This exists outside of any norms. I think I am more dreading a Trump resurgence than even most people because I have to point out during his almost his entire presidency, I was writing for a late night comedy show. So, of course, we dealt with Trump just all the time. And at the beginning, it was like weird, crazy fun. (laughs) It's easy to forget that summer of 2015 when everyone thought he was going to lose and everyone thought this is just this crazy larger than life figure. Put a 10 on that. Let's give him a bunch of free press. Let's just give him a bunch of free press. Yes. And John Oliver, to his credit, was very resistant to talk about Trump. He only we only did a piece on Trump when it became the case that you simply could not ignore him anymore. When he became a serious contender for the Republican nomination, it's like, okay, you cannot ignore this guy any longer. But writing jokes about him was it just sucked because he is a joke. He's a walking joke. There's nothing to add. Plus, the whole genre of Trump comedy quickly became one of the absolute worst genres of Trump comedy. It became like the level of, yeah, level of two clowns, you know, throwing cream pies in each other's faces. What, like that what do you, funny. when you try to get in the mind of Donald Trump, what do you imagine as a comedian or a comic writer? What do you imagine that man <laughs> thinks about when he wakes up in the morning? I mean, I, it's hard to imagine him in real life situations, like waking up and getting dressed. You know what? I agree. I actually have an answer to this question because we talked about this in the last week's mm. night writer's room. And, and this is great because it's, it's going to bring us back to the charges that he's facing. We talked about what the hell is up with this guy because we were dealing with him just constantly. Just you spend all day in that job sometimes watching Trump clips or reading Trump clips because we get them transcribed. We spent a lot of time asking, what's up with this guy? Here's the theory that I went with and that some of the other writers agreed with. He's basically he's like a puffer fish. And that he just reacts to stuff. Mm. You know how if you a puffer fish is swimming along and if you poke him, he puffs up? He, yeah. He's just reacting to stimuli in his environment. That's the way I think Trump is. I don't think he has foresight. He doesn't make plans. Does he Things have just- feelings? Is there an inner core, a <laughs> locus of control, a sense of self? What philosophers have posited as yeah. sometimes a soul. It's almost I mean, it's like a virus. Is a virus alive? I, I shouldn't compare it to a virus. I don't mean true. it. I, yeah, I don't I mean, mean it that way, but I just mean. There are these mean- liminal cases where we can't say if something is alive or not alive. Yes, which is exactly. Yeah, that's the point I'm trying to make. I don't mean to compare him to a, a plague, but I do mean to say that I don't think he plans way in the future. I think he just reacts to stuff. There were people in the early days, by the way, who were like, Oh man, this guy's playing eight dimensional chess. He knows. Oh, yeah. like, I don't think he knows. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't think he does it. But does he's like, like a that. very wily animal. And you know, it's crazy because people don't want to admit this, but the New York Times had a bunch of coverage of it this morning with a bunch of photographs published, you know, showing the Trump jet that he returned to Mar a Lago with, you know, showing the crowds of supporters waiting for him in New York and in Florida. And what always draws my eye is the fact that it's not an all white crowd of supporters. (laughs) It's not an all white crowd. Uh, No matter how you want to talk about this, there are some brown skin. I don't know if they're our Latinx brothers. I don't know if they're, if they're actually uh, African-American. I don't know how these brothers are identifying, but they're wearing mega hats. They're cheering on the president. They're there. They exist. It's crazy, man. (laughs) The condition that causes you to think, you know how I'm going to spend my day to day? I'm going to, I'm going to get up. I'm going to, if I'm, uh, if I have a job, I'm calling in sick and I'm going to put on some clothes and I'm going to drive down to where Donald Trump is. I'm going to stand outside where he's walking. And call it. That exists. That transcends race. Whatever part <laughs> of your brain gets you to do that, that exists wherever your ancestors are from. No doubt about it. We're all it. the same. We're really d- we're deep down. We're all the same. We're really all the same. Highly damaged. Let me tie my theory <laughs> of, of how Trump doesn't plan. He just reacts into the charges he's facing because One of the things that the prosecutor has to prove in order for these falsified business records Mm -hmm. to be charged as a felony is that he has to prove that Trump falsified the records with the intent Mm -hmm. to commit a second crime. And this would be either the tax fraud or the election law violations. And I think that word intent 
isn't that going to be a gigantic stumbling block for a prosecutor? Because can't Trump always, you know, his attorneys always say, like, this guy doesn't intend anything. You're giving him way too much credit for planning. He just sort of kind of does stuff. It's hard to argue with that, to be honest. That seems like a pretty ironclad defense. I don't get to be handing Trump ironclad defenses. I mean, if I'm sitting in a jury box, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think he did plan to do anything. (laughs) He just kind of does stuff. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, the position that seems most compelling to me is that in a situation like this, you don't try to frame a guilty man. You just have to be patient and you have to find the strong cases and you have to really try to get them on the best merits that you can. But I don't think this is going to do what people want it to do. Oh, I certainly agree. Absolutely. If there are any liberals out there having the fantasy, this is going to change public opinion about Trump, even if he's convicted. Public opinion about Trump is not going to change. You either love him or you hate him. And, and there's nobody who out there that I can imagine who's going to say, well, I liked Trump, but falsifying business documents, oh, that is a bridge, a bridge too, too far. far. That's, a, That's bridge a bridge too far. My brother is just excited by the idea that you could have a secret service logistical nightmare if, if this man goes to jail <laughs> trying to figure out. He's like, you know, like other presidents, their secret service after they're out there, their teams get to like chill on the island with Richard Branson while Obama golfs or like do do this other ill thing that Bill Clinton was getting into. But like Donald Trump's secret service is going to have to figure out how to like fit in in the, in the penitentiary with a, yeah, it's actually an amazing sight. I hope he gets whatever... Uh, he deserves. I'm not sure this case is going to be even what he deserves, because as much as I want to see him brought down, hush money payments that only matter because you're running for office and you need to keep them quiet, but they wouldn't matter if you were a real estate developer, a lawyer, or a a late night comedy writer. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't even move my moral indignation enough to think that this is where you should throw all your chips down. Yeah. You know, I agree. I mean, the cheating on your wife and then paying someone off to not talk about it, that's already pretty sleazy. It did not move my opinion about Donald Trump at all, because when I learned that he did that, I thought, yeah, that's the type of stuff he does. I was not surprised in the least. I do, by the way, completely agree with your friend David French that the charge in Georgia about trying to convince the governor to alter the election results, I think that's a much more, both it's, it's more serious much and more serious, more serious and for, from where I'm sitting, easier to prove the transcript of that tape. My God, I spent a couple weeks in late 2020 thinking, like, why is this not a bigger deal? And then January 6th happened and that's all anyone wanted to focus on. But yeah, I think that call to Georgia was a, it's a gigantic deal. Looks like we're short X amount of votes. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you seem to be in charge there. If you don't drum up X amount of votes, something bad might happen to you. I mean, something like that on tape. It's unbelievable. Not it's ambiguous. Un- it's unbelievable. Yeah. It, I think, I, and you know, people obviously were pretty upset about that at the time. I think it would have enraged people even more, except that he had just lost the election and people were like, look, we're, ju- we're just, we're almost done with this guy. It's like a yeah, breathing a sigh of relief. loud guy getting dragged out of the bar. It's like, look, he's exactly. almost out the door. Yeah. Just, just let him go. Breathing a sigh of relief. But it's actually one of the most serious things, uh, you know, you can pin to him. So I don't know. Yeah. The thing that's so interesting about this, I can't even quite keep up. It's like, if this one doesn't work in New York, <laughs> there's a bunch of others. So throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. Maybe something will stick. Maybe that's well, the best we can hope for. Yeah. I mean, that's probably not a good legal strategy, but I hear what you're saying. There are a lot of things percolating there. Yeah. There's the one in Georgia. There's the federal one about January 6th. That one's federal, right? There's, I don't know, the civil case already happened. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. Although as I have written on my Substack, I might be wrong substack.com. I would just like him to lose the Republican primary because I think that is the thing that would, after that, he's he's dead and buried. Because if the Republicans won't resurrect him, then nobody will resurrect him. And then there won't be any question about, you know, oh, it was a, it was a political prosecution that did him in and none of that. It will just like, well, he lost. He lost and he's gone. That's what I want. Yeah, well, unfortunately, this week, it feels like we're a step farther away from that than we were two weeks ago. Yeah, I unfortunately agree. Why don't we talk about happier things the end of humanity at the hands of AI. Thomas, AI is in the news all the time now. Some people are very It's unbelievable, bullish. isn't it? It, it? You cannot go a day without a story of it. It, it came out of nowhere. 
You know, yeah. like a few months ago, it just started being AI every day with chat GPT, but it's yeah. really incredible every single day, right? You cannot go without stories about AI, usually about how horrific it's going to make our lives. Eight out of 10 articles are about AI being very, very bad. And yeah. two out of 10 are maybe vaguely hopeful. It's right. really something. Do you think that's, what do you think about that? Is that overblown? Is it fear-mongering? Is it, is it appropriate given the rate of acceleration in this technology? What do you think? Honestly, it's hard to say. And one of the scariest things is that the people who are the most well-informed on the subject, the people at the cutting edge of the technology, mm -hmm. the people who do things that the rest of us can't even ever hope to understand how it mm -hmm. works, they say they don't know how it works anymore. And they're kind of ushering forth, they're, as, as Ross Douthat said, they're summoning something. That's weird. That's scary. Some of them are less uh, alarmed than others, but they all seem to basically agree that there's a not negligible possibility that what they're summoning will be disastrous. I just think that that's something so unbelievable to have drummed into your head every day in the news that like there are people that are not listening to anybody else that are in a kind of enclosed environment uh, with skills none of us understand or, or can hope to emulate, uh, yeah. working on some all-powerful technology that has even a 10% chance of decimating humanity. I mean, that's like, that's the Ezra Klein show every single week. Uh, <laughs> That's the Lex Friedman podcast with some guy working on, you know, open AI every single week, it seems. Yeah. Um, but this is a relatively smaller uh, story, I think, that you're getting at um, about BuzzFeed writers being put out of out of a job. But I, I don't think it's uh, insignificant to dwell on it for a second because I don't think that's where the buck stops. OK, yeah. Well, so let's let's get through the BuzzFeed yeah. thing and then we'll we'll broaden out to the bigger question. The BuzzFeed thing is that BuzzFeed, as they said they were going to do in January, is using AI to write some stuff. They said at first they were going to use it to just write BuzzFeed quizzes. Now it seems they are also using it to write some uh, travel-related articles. And what people have noticed is that these travel-related articles are, they all take the same shape. Let me read you some intros from some AI-generated BuzzFeed travel articles. This first one says, now I know what you're thinking. Cape May? What is that? Some kind of mayonnaise brand? My God, my job is safe. Here's another one. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Caribbean destinations are all just crowded resorts, right? Here's another one. Now, I know what you're thinking. Puerto Rico, <laughs> isn't that where all the... They all, they're like six it's of these, and they all it's start... It's amazing. Yeah, they all start it's with, amazing. now, I know what you're thinking. So, this is clearly displacing hack writers at BuzzFeed who would start their article with the same pablum every single time. That's now being done by AI now. Personally, let, let me throw this out there. There's got to be an element to this that is good, right? Some <laughs> low-level tasks. And I would say writing a travel article for BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed, let me go ahead and be a dick. I would call that low-level. Some things, it's good to have AI to do it. I'll tell you one thing I've been doing. I've been using AI to generate the artwork for my Substack last couple of weeks because it's really good. You can just type in Donald Trump on a TV show, which is, you know, what my one this week is, and it'll give you something pretty good. And it looks like- Let me ask you this, though. It. It's competent. But I think it's more than confident. Does it ever have that thing that your favorite illustrator has, that swag that your favorite illustrator brings, that sonpe quality to a New Yorker cover where you just, you know, it, it, there's something very powerful about, oh, there's another cover by sonpe There's another cover by Jean-Julien, uh, you know, this French illustrator who's, whose work has been all over the place. It's just that human touch. I wonder if the you're right. It's more than competent. I wonder if the AI is more than competent in so many situations that for the people who do break through and have a signature style, it makes that even more valuable, but that it's going to decimate so many people below that level. Quite possibly. But Thomas, let's be clear. Banksy was not doing the banner illustrations for my Substack to begin with. <laughs> uh, New Yorker, the New Yorker has more resources than I do on my little Substack. And uh, I was doing them myself. I was doing them myself, drawing on the three credits in Photoshop that I have from the Evergreen State College. I think I'd been doing a pretty serviceable job for the first two years. But the AI, it look it up yourself. The, the last two, the, the Trump one and the one about mm -hmm. uh, foreign factories are both AI generated. And then also I had one in the Trump one this week. Uh, I needed Gerald Ford on a game show. So I just put in <laughs> Gerald Ford on a game show. And so that there makes it was. sense. It, it would have taken me 
first of all, I would have had to get the image of Gerald Ford from, you know, Getty or whatever, which I pay for, and then Photoshop it in. So there's an hour. But Wait, I just so typed you, it in, and there it was. You would have to pay for the image. Yes. If you did it yourself, but you don't have to pay going through because AI? it's not actually because it's not actually Gerald Ford. It's it's just it's a, a composite a image, really or something? good drawing of Gerald Ford. Wow! And I credit the AI software. So so but many people that. are not getting paid now. Like the copyright holder is not getting paid. The illustrator is not getting mm-hmm. paid. You can see <laughs> the ripple effects actually. Like if, for you to have a more convenient Substack illustration well, experience, multiple levels of the economy are not getting their little payment. Well, you know, um, so I do have a strong opinion on this, which is that I think the we must thwart technology in order to save jobs argument. It's basically been made for 200 years and is always wrong. It's what people have been saying for as long as there's been an industrial revolution. It's just never correct. Jobs get displaced. New jobs come about. Our unemployment rate right now, I mean, what it's it's like four or something. It's very low. I'm Googling it right now. Unemployment rate. 3.6. 3.6. Thomas, when I was in college, we debated whether the rate of frictional unemployment, which is just the normal rate you have from people just changing jobs, whatever, mm-hmm. is between four and five. Now we've got it sustained at 3.6. I mean, unemployment is very low. I just have never bought the technology is going to take your job argument. And I think if you were really a believer in that argument, then we should bring back phone operators and bank tellers and all the jobs that everyone now goes, oh, yeah, well, no, obviously you have a machine do that. But yeah, I hear that. It's just that um, I guess maybe people always felt the situation was unprecedented, but it does feel to play devil's advocate. It feels to many people as though when you're talking about making a kind of practically omnipotent and omniscient super intelligence that the stakes are the stakes are getting high and they're getting high quick before we'll have the um, they're, they're exponentially getting more and more complicated and proficient at rates faster than we had ever anticipated that we won't be able to prepare ourselves in time. You know, like the leaps that have been made since last fall when chat GPT uh, dropped and GPT-4 now are crazy. Like I just today researched the Tulsa massacre on chat GPT to see how it would write up this event where, you know, the, the prosperous black community in the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street in the 1920s um, was essentially raised to the ground in a racial pogrom. Chat GPT did a very competent five paragraph write up of that historical event. And then I said, just to see, I said, can you write it in the stone, in the tone and style of Thomas Chatterton Williams? Hmm. It hit me back with something that was uh, not exactly how I would write it, but it was not far enough away for me to sit to not say, whoa, huh. that's crazy. And then I asked it, you know, what did you change between the two versions to make it in the tone and style of me? And it said, this is what, like, this is what you're known for. And these are attributes of your writing and it what, pinpointed what things. I mean, I don't want to get up on here and brag. <laughs> Chat GPT. Chat GPT is pretty, it's pretty high. Well, I, 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 was it good stuff or, or bad stuff? It was, was very it like, nice stuff. Was it, like, I, I, it really rambled. It was like really into itself. And uh, it's, I mean, it's, I've never put in, in the style of Jeff Maurer because I'm, I'm just terrified about what it would spit back Use of evocative language. Williams is known for his ability Ooh. to use rich descriptive language to convey complex ideas and emotions. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Uh, that's the gig, right? <laughs> the second version of the text uses phrases like heinous incident. Uh, mm. Emphasis on historical context. Williams is a writer who's deeply uh. interested in history. I mean, I don't know where it's coming up with all of this stuff. Intellectual curiosity. Williams is okay. known for that's his... Cur- I'll take... Basically, I'll take... I don't know... It complimented you. I don't know if my worst uh, detractors would agree with ChatGPT, but I'll take it right now. It seems to be a generous, uh, <laughs> a generous reader. But the thing is that, you know, even those of us who think we're safe with a style might be a lot less safe than we had been led to believe even like as recently as last summer. Now, maybe we're going to be still like writers who stake out a position and have a kind of perspective and are able to gain a readership that looks to them or an audience that looks to them for their judgment. Maybe we'll be able to maintain a little bit longer. Like the way I was saying, maybe illustrators like Sanpei or people that have their own, had their own real style might be able to still illustrate in in an era of really competent AI generated graphics, but you can see why it's getting scary. And the Buzzfeed thing, it's scary because you see how quickly editors fold to the imperative. The BuzzFeed editor, I believe his name is Jonah Peretti, am I right? Recently gave an interview 
<laughs> where he said... His sister's a comic. His sister's a well-known comic. Ah, uh, really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He recently gave an interview where he said that in no way would uh, AI be displacing writers at BuzzFeed. It would be a collaborative thing. And then quickly, the collaboration became reimagined as a collaboration between our marketing department and fully automated AI writers uh, with journalists nowhere to be seen and bylines wholly generated by this AI that's fond of a few catchphrases. So yeah, that's BuzzFeed. That's the bottom of the food chain. But you can see how it's going to eat its way up. Uh, potentially. I don't know about that. Potentially. I mean, you're right that, uh, you know, I'll certainly be singing a different tune if it comes for my job. I have asked it to write comedy sketches. It produces crap, in my opinion. It is also true that humans produce crap that sometimes goes on TV. So I don't know, maybe it's very much writing in our voice. That's- I do read this this joke that just came on. Now, I know you're thinking, Cape May, what is that? Some kind of mayonnaise brand? I think I got some time <laughs> before they're, they're going to take my job. But like I said, I, I agree. I'll be singing a different tune if it comes for me and I shouldn't be glib about people because it always sucks to lose your job. I mean, that, that's what's true. I do think technology, like it, you can't hold it back. But it is true that it really sucks to lose your job. I'm not so sure that it's going to displace columnists anytime soon because chat GPT, Bard, whichever one you Bing, whichever one you're using, as good mm-hmm. as they are, and they they are impressive. And I've used, I've just kind of, you know, fucked around with them a little bit. They're interesting and fun. I use them for like ideas. I'll like bounce ideas off them. I'm like, I think this is, this is interesting. Do you, you agree? You use them when you're lonely too, right? And, and when I'm, lo- yes, right, right. And, and and for sex stuff, of course. And for sex stuff, I say, well, you know, can this get sexual? And it says, I'm not programmed to do that. I'm like, what about for $10? And it goes, I'm not programmed <laughs> to do that. I'm like, 50, you drive a hard bargain. Anyway. <laughs> They're pretty good, is my point. As good as they are, they still make mistakes. They frequently oh, all the time. spit out stuff that is just flat wrong. And this is well chronicled. You know, you were searching the, the Tulsa massacre. Did, did it make any big glaring errors where you're like, no, that, that's completely wrong? Well, I didn't get a chance. I have to check that because I have used it in the past. And then I've gone back and Googled and Google was much more accurate for certain yeah. facts that ChatGPT could get wrong. But ChatGPT can make it seem... Uh, it can make wrong things seem so right, just like human writers. Uh, that's what's kind of scary. I mean, <laughs> look back at like the past 20 years of like the, the most high profile columnists at the New York Times. And I wonder if they get things right, predictions and Tom Friedman, does he get it right more than a coin toss? I'm not sure. No comment on that one. That is the good argument for AI when comparing it to a columnist or a comedian it's yeah, but have you seen the shit that humans are producing? How could we really do much worse than that? But I have you I, seen I how wouldn't... imitative the language humans use? <laughs> have you seen how often humans use the same rote phrase every time they start a travel piece? It's scary. Yeah, <laughs> I can think. I shouldn't. You know, I can think of shows where they would go, yeah, but have you seen this show? How could we possibly do worse? Let's get a robot on that. They won't. It won't do any worse than some show, which I won't mention, because I've learned in, in TV writing, if you shit on a show, you will meet that person within the next couple of days. Oh, but yeah. I don't want to read law. Yeah, ironclad law. I don't want to read a column by a chat bot because I know they might just be dead wrong. And humans, there are plenty of humans, you know, some opinions I value much more than others, but them getting something just dead wrong, I'm very wary about that with a chatbot, and I simply would not want to read it. Also, I don't think it can do the type of analysis, the kind of weighing of pros and cons that a good political thinker will do. I, I, I haven't seen it do that yet, and I wonder if it could ever do that. Yeah, it's also maybe there's just something not interesting about artificial intelligence, no matter how competent, like it's... Computers can beat uh, the best chess players very easily, Not no competition, but we don't stop playing chess or wanting to see other human beings play chess. You know, it's, there's true. still something about we want to see how the human mind works and figures things out. I hope that's still going to be the case with artistic production and, and knowledge production. We'll see. There's also the scary thing that's just like right now, these large language models are just, they're very good at just imitating everything that's already been said. But I guess we'll have to revisit this conversation if they start producing profound and original insights. That, yeah. That's going to be something. And, you know, I, it's just it's moving so fast. You know, I don't feel 
confident saying that that we'll have a ton of time. We're always living in exciting times these days. You know, we're going to die by some catastrophic apocalypse of climate change, uh, chat GPT, nuclear war. We've got, we've, you know, we've got a ton of things that get us now. Asteroids coming for us. (laughs) Guns in America. Guns in, if you're in America, it might just be much more analog. Yeah. Stealth Mormons with guns. Stealth Mormons are trying to raise the alarm bell about that threat. Ring the bell. So the, the existential question, which we started this conversation with, that's an interesting one because, as you noted, the people who are do seem to be most concerned about this are the ones who work in tech, are the ones who know the most. That is alarming to me because w- one thing I'm kind of frustrated about is I really have no ability to s- assess their claims because I don't really understand the technology they're talking about. There are people who work in tech, work with this technology, who are quite concerned about it. I wonder if there's a bit of selection bias in that if you are the person who works at Google or whatever and are very concerned about this, you're going to get on Ezra Klein's podcast where mm-hmm. the person or the nine people, I don't know what the breakdown is like, who are like, no, this is <laughs> fine. We we know what it is. They are not on the podcast because, you know, it's the old thing of a truck not on fire is not news. <laughs> Somebody going, you know what, it's just, a, it's just a little thing that you can have a conversation with. It's not dangerous or anything. That's not interesting. Whereas the person saying the end is nigh that person will get on the podcast. Yeah, I feel you. I used to feel much more compelled by that argument six months to a year ago. Something does feel <laughs> different now, but maybe it's just the mass the mass hysteria that's happening around this new LLM technology, but something feels more urgent than it did up until recently. But I, yeah. yeah, I hope you're right. And I think that's very true. You kind of, you know, alarmism books the shows. Um, Absolutely. Well, and those apocalyptic narratives really do something to our brains. There's so much post-apocalyptic content out there in books and movies. It's just an endless genre. There's really something intriguing and I think scary and fun about that whole genre. People keep reading those books, going to those movies, watching those TV shows. There's just something about doomsday that yeah, it and I like Barack Obama's uh, insight that, you know, shit's always been this fucked up, but we just see more of it now. <laughs> we just talk about it all the time now. We have more means of yeah. communication. Is that an example? I'm taking uh, some liberties with the phraseology, but. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's a disappointing, but I thought, I don't know, he's not president anymore. Maybe he is talking like that now. That's how I would have phrased it. He's cutting loose it's on Richard up, Branson's man. island. He's not facing any felonies. He's not facing any felonies. Nah, that's the kind of post-presidency you want. No felonies, golf, Caribbean islands. Private islands. islands. Fat-ass Netflix deal. Yeah, I'd take that. Yes, Chilling please. with Tom Hanks. Yeah. Chilling with Tom. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Why don't we move on to um, more bad news? And this bad news comes from my little corner of the world, or at least the place where I went to high school. The Hampton Roads area, specifically Newport News. Do you want to take us through this, or should I take us through this? Well, this is your part of town. I, I, that's kind of crazy. Newport News is one of those places. I don't think I've ever, I've driven through it once. How dare I've you? Never, I've, I've never felt the texture <laughs> of, uh, of the community. What's the community like these days? Or what was it like when you were growing up? Yeah, I can speak in the 90s. Well, also, I'm not from Newport News. I'm from Chesapeake, which is like the southern end of the metro area. Newport News is mm-hmm. the northern end of the metro area. Okay, um, educate us. Yeah, it's, Thomas, it's seven cities, the seven cities in the Tidewater <laughs> area. Okay. Uh, anyway, Newport News is one of them. And um, I don't know what to say. It's a heavily military area, heavily military. Uh, I actually used to work at a video store because as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I'm a thousand years old and I used to work at a video store. And one of the stores that would sometimes they'd need extra help was in Newport News. So I don't know, working class. Like I said, a lot of military. The Hampton Roads area is a lot of military, a lot of service. So I hope that provides some texture for the story. The story, sadly, is about a student shooting a teacher. The student was six. It's about a six-year-old, six. for, from what I understand, purposefully, intentionally, not accidentally, but purposefully shooting his teacher. The good news is the teacher survived. The teacher is alive. She was shot, it, the bullet hit her in the hand and the side. Horrific, obviously. She is alive. She is now suing the, oh shoot, is it the school district or the school itself? She is suing. She brought a $40 million lawsuit for negligence against school administrators. It says school administrators here in this article. So I don't know if it's the district or the school itself, but against school administrators for negligence. Thomas, what are your thoughts on that? Personally, I'm on the kid's side. Hot take. No, I'm not. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have even said that. But The kid sounds like he was a real problem. I mean, it's yes. hard to say that about a six-year-old, but he has apparently 
just a pretty. Let this six-year-old have it. Let this really, really give it to this six-year-old here, Thomas. Why don't you run us through his rap sheet? Repeatedly choked this teacher and another teacher. Um, repeatedly assaulted other students. Most days, he was unable to be in school without at least one parent with him. It's really sad. This was one of those stories that was blowing up because people quickly gleamed, gloamed to the racial dynamics. The school is, uh, according to U.S. News and World Report, 74% minority. The administrators in question, the teacher was white, but the assistant principal who allegedly said when multiple students had reported the six-year-old who is alleged, or the six-year-old who shot the teacher, when multiple students came and told um, staff that he was bragging about having a gun with him, the assistant principal said, uh, well, you know, his pockets are too small to have a gun in it, so it can't be true. So there was no need to search the boy. There was no need to take any greater precautions. And he ends up pulling out the gun in class while Abigail Zwerner, I believe is her name. Is that the teacher? Yeah, Abby Zwerner, while she was sitting at a reading table and he pointed it at her and he shot and she was able to hold her hand up and the bullet went through her hand and then into her chest, which probably saved her life. It's a tragic, just really, really sad story. I don't really, you know, have a lot of patience for the the attempt that corners of the internet tried to make to racialize the story. This happened in January, by the way. But I do think that there's an overarching, fundamentally American sadness and tragedy to this, which is the ease with which even a six-year-old can get their hands on a legally purchased firearm in the home uh, and bring it into school. Now they're talking about the solution is going to be that they're going to put metal detectors in the elementary school. I mean, can you, this is very difficult for me to wrap my mind around. You know, I still am, I'm raising my children in, in Europe. This is the mentality that thinks Oh, yeah. Well, sometimes six-year-olds bring uh, gats to school. So let's just like put metal detectors in the entryways and that's going to make us safer. No, this society really has to do some soul searching about why there are so many guns in circulation that even a six-year-old can just find one, know how to use it, know how to know what it's for, put it in his pocket, brag about it, and then blast his teacher uh, after repeatedly choking her and others and demonstrating a propensity to violence that nobody thought it was serious enough to intervene about. The metal detectors certainly do seem like what they call a pump handle solution. If people haven't heard that phrase before in the 19th century in London, there was a cholera outbreak and they were trying to find the source and they knew it had something to do with this pump, but they were still trying to figure it out. So in the meantime, what they did is they just took the handle off the pump. So he at least could not, <laughs> could not pump water from the cholera infected well. So, which is to say, it's a uh, just a stopgap measure when you have no other ideas. That does seem to be what the yeah. metal detectors are. Uh, yeah, this is so horrible. I don't, I am never going to have a gun in the home because I would be terrified of my son finding it. That is exactly why I don't want a gun, a house, to be... What's amazing... To be perfectly fair, to be devil's advocate, if you have any gun, if you, you know, because I am often an advocate for stronger gun laws, but if you have laws that allow people to have, to legally have handguns in the home, this is a possibility, is it not? Because obviously the kid didn't walk into Walmart and buy the gun. The kid presumably took No, and that's what's dad. kind of amazing to me is that uh, the reports say that uh, neither of the parents will be charged with anything, uh, with negligence even, right. even, though, even though the gun was not locked away in a secure place. And of course, the six-year-old won't be charged either because police said it was very difficult to uh, for a six-year-old to even understand the workings and mechanisms of the legal system, obviously. But we're in a situation where he does understand where the guns are kept and his parents are not keeping them properly stored and no one's held accountable. And the American solution, I guess, is that if you're lucky enough to survive such a calamity, um, you can probably get some financial recompense for it in, in, in a monstrous <laughs> lawsuit. And, and, and then we'll put some metal detectors up and we'll never Never actually address the root underlying cause. Would you say the root underlying cause is gun laws? Gun laws and an inability to even conceive of a society that could be otherwise than the one we've acclimated ourselves to, which is that guns are a fact of life and we have to figure out how to live with a lot of them 
And we're going to sometimes like Shirley Jackson's the lottery. Um, every so often, we're just going to have to agree to having a certain amount of people sacrificed for this weird local custom we have that other parts of the world don't have. Yeah. I've written about this on my Substack. I don't often like to talk about guns because honestly, my position is so far left. I wouldn't advocate any politician taking it because it would be such a <laughs> electoral <poison>. suicide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would be because because if I if I could just write a law by fiat, I think the right I, the law I would write would be that basically the only guns you are allowed to legally have, which serve the I think there are two legitimate purposes for guns self-protection of, of the home specifically. I think out, out in the world, they cause way more problems than they solve. So protection in the home and hunting. So to serve those two purposes, you could have guns that are at least two feet long and fire no more than two shots. So basically hunting rifles would be legal and handguns would not be. Honestly, that's basically France. It's some countries in Europe. This law I do not think will happen in the United States in my lifetime. No. It <laughs> no. is notable. It, it is notable. Canada has looser gun laws than people might expect. In Canada, you can have guns. There are restrictions on what you must do with them in the home and where you can take them. They do have a hell of a lot of guns in Canada. They do not have as many, nearly as many gun deaths as we have in the United States. I feel the need to point that out in the in the interest of fairness because it's you know it's it's yeah. I don't know the Canadian situation. I I thought that they were recently doing a handgun ban up there, but uh, maybe I'm misremembering that. I don't know what the st- um, I don't know what the current state of it is, but I know that has been the law at least as of quite recently. Mm-hmm. But well, yeah, the, um, but- we can't get into the detailed statistics of how fewer guns correlates with fewer gun deaths. So that does certainly seem to be true around the world. It just it seems to me that we have made a bargain that we're unwilling to you know revisit and renegotiate that amounts to a quite unacceptable situation. It's something kind of sick. You know, this six-year-old clearly has problems, but a six-year-old is a six-year-old. And it's kind of a sick thing that a society agrees that a six-year-old can even be in a position to get his hands on um, such a deadly instrument. You would want your six-year-old to be uh, in situations where that's not even a feasible option. That's not even a possibility. But, you know, and that's not a possibility in most wealthy countries that we are otherwise, you know, compared to. When you let your kids go over to somebody's house, do you ever ask, hey, by the way, do you have a gun in the home? Not in Paris, <clears throat> where my kids live, but <laughs> upstate New York, where I am now, I I would think very seriously about uh, whether uh, my kids were going over a neighbor's house. I would want to know that. It, it, it actually is pretty relevant information. I think that is a question I might ask when my son gets older. You know, right now he's three and a half months. So if he's going over so to someone's house, I'm just he can start that. strap. He can start strapping to school <laughs> in like five and a half years. If he's precocious. Yeah, well, I, this kid in Newport News seems to have maybe been gifted. I mean, he was strangling at the age yeah. of five. So he was, he was, he was adept in the game. Developmental curves. Man, um, <laughs> that's some American exceptionalism. That's some precocious American <laughs> exceptionalism, man. On that note, man, I think, is, is, should we wrap it? Yeah, I think we should wrap it there. When we're speculating about how soon my son will be able to own a gun, let's go ahead and uh, wrap it up. T.C. Williams High School, always good talking to you. I'm changing my name to Thomas Chambly. Good talking to Thomas you, Jeff. <laughs> All right, Thomas Chambly Williams. See you next week. Peace. Bye.